before we start this episode, just a really quick mention from the people who pay our bills, HubSpot. So here's the question. Ever wondered what unicorns eat for breakfast? Sometimes, actually. Yeah, I'm thinking something like Lucky Charms, Candy Floss, some kind of soup. Something horny. Well, actually, we don't know. But what we do know is that 20% of unicorn startups are using HubSpot, and for good reason. Yes, HubSpot's all-in-one platform levels up your sales software and support. Plus, they have a huge collection of resources to help startups scale. And with the HubSpot for Startups program, you can save big on your first year. To see if you're eligible to save on HubSpot, visit HubSpot.com startups. What this award has done is it's also helped our parent company understand the importance of what we do from the people side of things. Hello and welcome to the Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture podcast, where we help you simplify the science of people. My name is Leanne. I'm a business psychologist. My name is Al and I'm a business owner. And welcome back. Welcome. And if you are new, then welcome to you. Um, I hope that you've been going through our back catalogue because we've been looking at the numbers and we can tell you how we've been snooping on you. <laughs> we can see you. <laughs> no, really. But no, thank you. Thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. And please do get in touch. Uh, truthliesandwork.com is our website. You can follow us on the socials, Truth Lies Work. Drop us an email, get, drop us a message. We do read them and we do respond. We love to connect with our listeners. Okay, so what are we talking about today, Leah? Well, today we are talking about Britain's Healthiest Workplace Survey and the awards. Last week, we were talking about how to build a killer employer brand. And as we learned, employer brand is the external representation of our internal culture. And of course, culture and well-being go hand in hand. So today, we're going to talk about Britain's Healthiest Workplace Awards, the lessons you can apply within your culture to create an environment in which your people thrive. Don't worry too much if you're not from the UK. These insights will help any business of all shapes and sizes wherever they are in the world. Yeah, so we're going to go, we've got three amazing guests, so we'll get straight into it and introduce those guests. The first one is Jill Pritchard, who's the Director of Vitality at Work at Vitality, and she's the leader behind the awards. So I started off being a pharmacist, but I very quickly realised that actually it wasn't the drugs pathway that I was precious about. So when I was offered a job to come and work for Vitality to actually take the Vitality programme and take it to large organisations as a wellbeing programme, that really excited me and I thought actually preventive care is the best care. Our second guest is Donna Burgess. Donna is Head of Operations and People at Open Credo, who are one of the winners of this year's award. So I actually joined Open Credo as a portfolio, people portfolio manager. My role now is, it's a hybrid role, the role I do now. It's half business operations and half people. So it's quite different from the types of work that I used to do. The commonality is all around teams and people. And finally, let's go and meet Christian van Stolk, who's the Executive Vice President at RAND Europe and one of the researchers behind the survey. So I'm uh, Chris van Stolk. I'm, I have a lofty title. I'm Executive Vice President at RAND Europe. Um, but uh, technically, I'm really a researcher. And I've spent my last decade and a half looking at the health and well-being of uh, employees in different workforces. So let's just talk quickly about what the difference between the survey and the awards are. 
So Britain's Healthiest Workplace Survey, that was established to help businesses of all sizes support their employees to be happier, healthier, and more productive. That was founded by Vitality Insurance, we've just heard from Jill, and it's free to take part, although you have to have 20 or more employees, and we'll go into that in a second. This survey is going to give you the deep insight into your employees' lifestyle, physical, and mental health, and the effects the pandemic has had on them. It's going to give you recommendations to help boost their physical and mental well-being. It's going to help improve business outcomes like productivity and retention. And it helps you write, execute, and measure an effective well-being strategy. So the difference between this and your sort of like other types of awards, like uh, like the Oscars, for example, is that no one's nominated for this. It's just the people who score highest. The companies that score highest are the actual winners. So Leanne's going to take us through what the survey results told us in 2022. Yes, I am. And I think it is really cool what, what you said, Al. These, these awards are given out based on how employees are thinking, feeling, um, and talking about their own organisation. So there really is a lot of authenticity and integrity. What it also means is that it gives us some really great insights into the state of work in 2022. Yes, this is UK-centric, but I'm sure when I start to give you some little snippets, you will have seen these statistics in other parts of the world as well. I'm not going to go through them all, but we will leave a link to um, the website and also to an article by the Financial Times that goes into much more detail. But just a, a few insights to to share with you, which I think are really interesting. First of all, we know that businesses are losing thousands of hours each year. So productivity has been dropping steadily since 2014. And it's estimated that businesses lose over a month each year per employee. That's quite shocking. That really is, isn't it? Yeah. So in 2022, employees lost about 20% of working hours. So if you've got full-time employees that work in five days a week, that's an entire day. They might as well just not even be there. And that's a case for a four-day work week right there, isn't it? <laughs> which, is a, which is another podcast for another day. Yes, it is. So what about hybrid work? We've learned that hybrid workers are thriving. And this is a finding that was also reflected in the State of Workplace Burnout 2023 report that we talked about a couple of episodes ago. So the pandemic changed everything. Hybrid working is becoming a new normal for many of us. What's interesting is that the survey found that hybrid employees have the lowest loss of productive days. They're also more active and have better diets than office employees. And it also looks as though hybrid workers have better mental health than non-hybrid workers. So to give you some more indication, about 9% of hybrid workers suffer from depression, while only 1.4% feel that stress from their home life interferes with their work life. We've got some episodes coming up around about Gen Z, millennials, um, and all the differences in working. So how does it affect the younger people? Well, what the survey found, again, similar to results we, we saw in the burnout report, younger employees are struggling to adapt to the workplace. Findings suggested that they're less likely to report a good work-life balance and more likely to burn out. And as you'll remember, that was a really surprising statistic we found in the 2023 State of Workplace Burnout Report. They're also uh, younger employees are more likely to suffer from depression and have financial concerns. And again, linking it back to productivity, we're finding that employees under the age of 35 lose 12.5 more productive days per year than their older colleagues. Which is one more a month, isn't it? Mm, yeah. Quite a lot. So finally, a lot of organisations seem to have put, put some kind of support in place but how, how are employees finding that? I think this is what, what I found one of the most interesting insights from, 
from the survey. You're absolutely right. And I think particularly as well during the the pandemic, we saw employees put in a lot more um, support and, and health interventions for their employees. What we found is that organisations actually offer about 45 health interventions in average. That can be both staying active, eating well um, and supporting mental well-being. But what we also found is that only 61% of employees know about the support available. So there's almost, you know, there's 40% of our employees that don't even know what these interventions are, that aren't even accessing the support that's available to them. And on the flip side, 85% of employees who do access these interventions say their health improves when they use them. So I think that's a really important insight in this. And I think Krishna will talk about this a bit more as well. It's not always about doing more, it's about doing better. So let's go and join Jill and Christian as they explain the basis behind the awards. Remember, Jill is from Vitality, which is the company that produces the awards. And then Christian is the researcher behind the actual survey. Britain's Healthiest Workplace, it started off in 2012, and it was there, I would say, more predominantly as an award ceremony. So we were going out to find out, actually, what could organisations do to really support the health of their people? Go find out. Let's let's announce who is, who is the healthiest workplace in the UK. And as part of determining that, we asked a very broad set of questions from the environment, the culture, the services they offer, right through then to the actual health of the people. How is that environment helping the health of the people? And then taking that to the next stage of, well, actually, how does that affect their performance? So are people productive? Are they engaged? And another uh, initiative is the Britain's Healthiest Workplace, um, which is an initiative that's, um, you know, is, is is done with Vitality, the University of Cambridge, the Financial Times. Um, we started that really in earnest in 2013, and we've been running that ever since uh, together. And it has given some, us some fantastic insights into, uh, the, you know, into uh, health and well-being of, uh, of, 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 uh, of workplaces and employees within those workplaces. So let's answer the question that everyone's asking, who actually won? Yeah, so November 2022 was when the winners were announced. And they have three different categories for three organisational sizes. First up is the small business, which is 20 to 249 employees. First place was Open Credo, where our guest Donna um, is from. Second was Blue Motor Finance. And in the third was Phoenix Natural Gas. We then have the medium business category. That's 250 to 999 employees. First place in that category was Novo Nordisk, who we're going to hear a bit more about from, from Jill. Second place was Program Planning Professionals Limited and third was the CLS Group. In the large business category, that's more than a thousand employees. First place went to Namora, second to Arkiva, and third to Derbyshire Community Health Services NHS Foundation Trust, which brings me joy because I used to I used to do some employee engagement and culture work with the NHS. That is cool. So we'll put these winners in the show notes so you can go and uh, go and do some research on them if you if you wanted to. Um, we are obviously going to hear from Donna from Open Credo, which was the winner of the small business category, but. I think the question a lot of people, listeners have got right now is, what actually is it going to do for me to A, take the survey, um, and B, if I was nominated or or winning? So let's hear from Jill. In order collating all of these results to determine who is the winner, we actually found that actually the most beneficial part of this survey was not actually being awarded, but it was actually the great insight that you got from participating because you start to see the relationships between having great leadership or having the right culture or right having the right services that their people are aware of ultimately does improve the health of the people and ultimately does improve the productivity. 
So I would say now, whilst yes, it is a competition, I would say 90% of organisations that participate are actually doing it to get a true understanding of the health of their workforce. So clearly a business case there once again for prioritising well-being and healthy workplaces. Let's hear Donna. So as we said, Donna is Head of Operations and People at Open Credo, who is the winner in the small business category. I think um, it has made us realise, really realise the impact of people-focused activities that can have on on the workplace itself. Um, And also that a lot of these things, they sort of, they they almost not happen in the background, but they're not always in the forefront of people's mind that these things are being put in place like people, you know, support and various benefits and those sorts of things. Um, And I just think it's brought it much more to the forefront of the importance really of a wide spectrum of people focused activities and I'm not talking about just the social things and, and those but there's celebrating people's achievements we do that as well every month and I also think there's a focus and I also think there's a focus on us as individuals as we've individually answered the survey perhaps there's a focus of like mm, actually I could do more here <laughs> for myself so, as well so which is not necessarily what the company can do so um, the company can't help me sleep better but that's something that I can do myself you know, so it's helpful for those those aspects as well. Donna raised a, a really good point there. You know, as business leaders, we can't we can't control every aspect of, of a person's well being or, or health. Uh, there are certain things that we can do and other things that we can help to to support them. Um, but I think what's great about what Donna said there is even just making this part of the conversation and raising awareness then helps you feel more more accountable and more empowered as an individual to start to make some lifestyle changes as well. I think it's really worthwhile because when you examine something like what gets measured gets managed, when you examine something, it does make you ask questions. Talking of asking questions, let's hear from the researcher, Christian. Um, And what I realised is that uh, very few um, uh, organisations at the time, very few academics are really looking at the human factor. So it's almost like the human factor was taken out of these systems. And we were talking about systems, processes, capacity in abstract terms and not really thinking about how the human was really at the centre of this. And also sometimes we, I guess, um, we, we sort of reduce the human to being a sort of this rational being, economic being. And ultimately, what we know, um, Leanne, is that there's many dimensions to human behavior, and there's a very strong, um, you know, irrational side to it as well, to to human behavior and so on. So, really, understanding really what's um, what's how a health and well-being of individuals plays into this, I think, was really, really quite critical. I had a really interesting conversation with Christian. And I think one of the things that I really enjoyed hearing about was why. Why do we need to examine work behaviours and well-being? Here's Christian. The idea was really to look at uh, certain types of work behaviours and then look at what the health and well-being impacts of that work behaviour would be. So, for instance, you could say sending emails late in the evening is bad for health and well-being. Uh, or you get up really early and you start um, working, that is bad for your health and well-being, or being an excessive number of meetings during the day might be bad for your health and well-being. These were the hypotheses that we were testing. As it happens um, in this research, what we showed is that there are really um, different categories of workers, first of all, that's important to think about. So, you know, even within an organization, there are a variety of different subcultures. And these um, workers typically like to work in slightly different ways. And that's interesting. And if you dig below that, uh, there is no real uniform uh, type of work behaviors that leads to uh, optimal health and well-being outcomes. So what this means is really that there's a high degree of personalization that is required within the workforce. 
So having a blanket ban on emails after seven or eight in the evening uh, might seem like a good idea to a chief executive, but ultimately you probably um, are, 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 are sort of impacting negatively uh, the, the you know a certain group of workers within your organization. There's two things I, I took from that. I think the first of, of, you know, why should we measure these behaviors? Our assumptions can be wrong. You know, Christian here is a very experienced scientist and, and researcher. And as he said there, they had hypotheses that, that turned out not to be true. And I think and anecdotally, that does make sense because we all know people who, who send emails at six in the morning um, and, you know, some of them, it just works better for them to get all the emails out of the way. I mean, there's so many books on it saying that if you can do all your stuff like Eat That Frog and all the other stuff where you do all the stuff in the morning, then you leave the rest of the day for creativity. Yeah, by saying you can't send emails at five o'clock in the morning, that's, you know, that's not going to fit in with everyone's way of working. Yeah, and, and you know that's what what Christians found in in his research, both through this survey and um, into hybrid work, which I'm sure we'll talk about in another episode. Um, there are typically kind of four clusters that that he's identifying, and and those four clusters of employees usually depend on whether they're an individual contributor or whether they're a line manager. Uh, it depends on their gender, their age, their years of tenure, um, and all of these things can can feed into their preferences in terms of behaviours at, at work. So we now know a little bit more about the actual behaviour study and the research. Let's find out what the judges are actually looking for. Here's Jill. So we, it's all calculated um, quite scientifically. And so it's not, um, it's, it's all data-driven decisions. Um, so initially we look at that environment. And so the metrics that we look in there is actually what are the comprehensive nature of the services that are being offered? Are their employees aware of the services? Are they using them? And most importantly, are they benefiting for them? So are you, are you offering the right things? But actually, interventions can just be sticky plasters if you don't necessarily have the culture that allows people to utilize them and feel, you know, it's okay for me to go for a walk at lunchtime. So it's, you know, the interventions are just sticky plasters unless you get that culture right. So we also look at that culture as how do people feel about that organization and their values? You know, is it a diverse, inclusive workforce? Are they being supported by their line managers? And so it's really trying to capture, is the workplace the right environment for us to thrive? So that's the first measure. The second measure then is purely a measure of health of those individuals. And we utilize a clinical algorithm that takes both in physical health metrics, but also lifestyle behaviors to give you a health age. And we call it the vitality age. And it's the gap between someone's health age and their chronological age as we have as a determinant of health. So we look at this vitality age gap overall for an organization to see how is the health of that organization. The final element of then is, is actually what are the outputs So what are the business outcomes that an organization would be looking for if they've got a comprehensive wellbeing strategy. And that's where it comes to the productivity, engagement, satisfaction. Um, the fourth measure we then look at is actually participation because in order for it to be credible, you say you need a certain proportion of your population participating in the survey. Um, so you've got to get and reach a threshold to allow it to be statistically valid. But then if you go over and above that, the more that you get will also give you more points to, to become overall Britain's Southeast Workplace. This is awesome. So just to, to break down and recap what Jill said there in terms of what the judges are looking for. First of all, they are going to look at um, the nature of, of services and interventions that are being offered. But the key thing here that Jill says 
interviews can just be sticky plasters if you don't have the culture that allows people to utilize them. And I think that is massive. Otherwise, we are throwing money at interventions that people are either aren't utilizing or aren't meeting their needs. So that's a really great point from, from Jill there. And as part of that culture piece as well, they also look at diversity, inclusion, and as always, the line manager. The second measure then is, as Jill said, around health of, of those individuals. Um, so that's lots of questions about physical health, mental health and lifestyle to get their vitality age. The third element is outputs. What are the business outcomes an organization should be looking for if they have a comprehensive well-being strategy? Positive well-being is good for business. It's as simple as that. And in terms of the threshold, what Jill's saying there, if we have 100 people in our organization, but only 20 fill out the survey, that's not going to meet a threshold. We need to know that 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 data is scientifically valid. Um, so you are going to have to get a, a minimum response rate in that in that survey in terms of percentage of your team. So we're now going to hear from Christian, the researcher behind it. He uses a term which I didn't know, and I'm not sure everyone will know, of ESG. What does that mean, Leanne? ESG is environmental, social and governance. It's basically a framework of non-financial factors that helps us understand and assess the risks and opportunities uh, within an organisation that aren't financially related. Really at the heart of, of this is the idea of sustainable business. And I think that's where Christian is quite right to talk about bringing health into, into part of that conversation. So let's hear from Christian. There's hardly ever a winner that, uh, that does not um, have uh, health and well-being as a key organisational priority. Um, Typically, there's a quite significant engagement with the board around um, around health and well-being. They tend to report on their health and well-being, um, almost a little bit like an ESG aspect of it. But I would call it ESGH. You know, health is an is an important dimension of that as well. And I've, I'm I'm actually working uh, with um, Business for Health to bring the H into the ESG debate as well. And I think that's really important. Um, line managers' capacity, they, they tend to invest quite a lot in their line managers in terms of giving them training and upskilling them in terms of, uh, of managing the health and well-being of staff. And they typically have um, a really well-structured uh, and branded health and well-being program as well, uh, whereby you know it's easy to ex access. Uh, all employees understand exactly what the employer organization is doing uh, around this, uh, that they know it's important. Okay, so now let's talk about how you actually apply. Here's Jill. Yeah, so the survey is free of charge for any organization over 20 employees. Um, to be clear, the 20 employees is because we need anonymous data. And so that's from a GDPR perspective. And we encourage every sector, as I say, it's completely free to participate. And you, the, at the back of it, what we do is we, we analyze that data and give not just your points to go towards the competition, but an incredibly comprehensive review to address how's your well-being strategy, how's it affecting your people, how's it affecting business outcomes. So it doesn't matter whether you're completely new to well-being and you want to understand the risk factors and your starting point, or the likes of Nova Nordisk and Nomura who've got a really well-established well-being strategy. They want to understand what's working well and what's not working well. The survey is a really great resource. And as Jill said, it, it's free. And it's going to give you some really great insights into how your, your business is currently managing it, its well-being, its well-being strategy. Jill also mentioned one of the other winners of the awards this year, Novo Nordisk. They won the medium-sized business category. So we asked Jill, why did Novo win? You look at Nova Nordisk and they were right up there. So their support that they give their employees 
is as high for the healthy behaviours as it is when they're unwell. Which brings me right back to where we started, that actually it's that preventative care that can ultimately stop people then following on and needing curative care. And it allows for people just to remain engaged and remain productive and, and they'll get the best out of them. You know, health isn't just in work, health is 24-7. But more importantly, because it's got that culture from the top, the line managers also know the importance of the well-being of their people, but also to signpost it really easy. So you get this culture that actually they've, they've done some really simple things. So for their line managers, if you can't fit it on one page, you're offering way too much. Quick announcement for all listeners. Yeah, I've got a I've got a new toy on my on my little deck thing, so I can make my voice change. Anyway, sorry. I Leanne. love it. Do it again. Hello, Leanne. Whoa! Do another one. Hello. <laughs> but we didn't interrupt your podcast listening for uh, for this. We actually interrupted it to tell you about one of our new favorite podcasts. It's called Success Story. It is hosted by Scott D. Clary, and it is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Success Story features question and answer sessions and conversations on sales, marketing, business, startups, and entrepreneurship. Oh, and if you like this podcast, then I think you'll love Scott's episode in back in December, where the infamous Seth Godin talks about empowering employees. So go listen to Success Stories wherever you get your podcasts. Just to remind ourselves, if you can't fit it on one page, you're offering too much. But as Christian's about to tell us, it's not a silver bullet. So typically there are no silver bullets um, in this field. So I think it is really about line, giving line managers the capacities uh, to, uh, to manage their staff. It's also really about looking after the health and well-being of line managers. And I'll explain uh, to you what I mean by that in a, in a second. So it's really about giving myself and other, uh, other managers the skills to actually do their job properly. And most line managers are, are really not trained to do their jobs. They're just promoted on the basis of being having good technical skills uh, like myself. So I think it is about... Um, understanding really what we want line managers to do. On the other hand, line managers are not really immune to poor health and well-being. You know, my health and well-being fluctuates like anybody else's. And when my uh, health and well-being is suboptimal, as is the case for, for many line managers when they're under a lot of pressure, it also reduces their effectiveness in managing the health and well-being of their staff. There are lots of studies that show exactly that. Um, so we also need to look after our line managers and not make him sort of um, not, not, not overburden them with, all, with, with, with huge responsibility without giving them something in return. Um, so ultimately, what we're talking about, uh, you know, and this always comes down to the same thing, is about a cultural shift within organizations, really, um, which comes from the top down. Christian is is emphasizing the the point there that that well-being strategy, culture, and great line managers all go hand in hand and work together to create one of the, the healthiest workplaces. And a really important point there as well. The health and well-being of our management teams, of our leaders, is equally important. We have to invest in ourselves as much as we invest in our teams. So we've heard from the winners in the small and medium business categories. The winner in the large business category, that's more than a thousand employees, was Nomura. So they have actually been part of Britain's Healthiest Workplace for the past eight years. And they say the message to our employees is that this is a long-term relationship and in any long-term relationship, you have to invest in the people, build them up and prioritize personal well-being development. And I think that's just a really cool sentiment to have at the heart of your well-being strategy. As employer to employee, let's invest in this as a long-term relationship. 
Exactly. Really, really good stuff there. And it's all about this idea that it's down to relationships, adult to adult relationships, everyone being invested in the same thing in a long term basis. Speaking of which, what else can we learn from the winners? We asked Jill what they did well. So they treat the well-being of their people with the highest priority as they treat profit. And there's some simple things that organizations can do that cost nothing that will help that. For example, have you got someone on your board that is responsible and accountable for the well-being of your people? Because unless you've got that board accountability, how are you expecting it then to flow down to be important to the lead, the senior leaders? How do you expect it then to flow down to be important to the, to the line managers? And then how do you expect it to flow down to the employees? So you've, you've got to start at the top. And the organizations that we've done well, I know Nomura, as an example, has always done this, is that they report at board level once a month on their on the well-being of their staff. And it's just, it keeps it as a high priority and it keeps it front of mind. It's just such a simple thing, but it makes it makes all of a difference. It is a simple thing, and it's a simple thing that you can put in place now, that you could have in, in place in your business at your next board meeting. You know, just having having that person responsible and accountable for the well-being of your people. That's a really tough question to to ask yourself honestly. As a business, do you put people before profit? It's a hard question to answer. And if you're not sure, then I'd say maybe get somebody on the board who who could answer that question for you. 100%. And we're going to hear more about why it's important to come from the top in a second. Before that, let's go back to Donna, one of the winners. And we're going to ask her, were there any surprises in the survey or the awards? Yeah, I think um, we weren't fully sure of the spectrum that was going to be covered. So that that was quite revealing So to us. And it was like, oh, how does this fit with health? So there was that those sorts of moments for me. So it was quite so it was quite broad. It was quite broad. So yeah, it was interesting in that respect. Again, I think that's a really cool thing about about the the survey and the awards. They do cover um, a large spectrum of of what it means to create a healthy workplace. And as I mentioned at the top there, it's the survey that sits behind the awards. And the survey has really given us some valuable insights that we can all use to better understand our business and the health and well-being of our employees. We asked Jill a little bit more about the survey um, and the trends that, that she observed in the data. So the survey data, I mean, there's a definite trend that the health of UK workforce is worsening. And I, I think we predicted that, but actually to, to, to get that stark data, particularly looking at mental health and obesity, there was it was always a trend that it was worsening, but actually it's shifted, shifted up now. Um, and the same with burnout and fatigue, you know, over a quarter of our workforce are now reporting that. And that's that's a concern. But it's also when we link then that to the productivity and the engagement of those people that are suffering, it's significantly worse. And that's what I want the survey data to be used is that actually there's this opportunity to say, do you know what, there's a business case for well-being because actually if we can really put effort in and invest in making our, our people healthier, we gain as a business. We, we get more productive people, we get more engaged people and they're less likely to leave us. I think this is a really worrying pattern we're seeing in the data that that's coming out burnout is becoming a significant problem we know from our burnout episodes it was estimated you know up to half of the workforce are experiencing burnout the vitality survey has suggested it's about a quarter about 25 percent 
Um, so I'm sure, you know, the the number lies between those two points. If you are worried about burnout, um, do please go back and, and listen to to the episodes that that we did on on that. There's some really great advice in there, both for your own health and well-being and for that of your team. So we also asked Christian, was there anything interesting coming out of the results that he saw? But I'll give you one example of a, a piece of work we did with a pharmaceutical company. They were interested in called, uh, something called Nocturia, which might not mean very much to you, but Nocturia is, is something quite familiar to many of us because it's when we get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. And they wanted to understand how getting up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom impacted people's, um, you know, um, working lives. Um, so, so my view was, on that was that, well, look, um, as you get older, obviously, you're more likely to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and so on. And my, my, my feeling is that you probably fall asleep relatively quickly afterwards. So the impact would be relatively minor. Okay. Um, and by doing a study, and, and again, we use some, some of the vitality data to do so, um, what we actually established is that it has quite a significant impact. So even very small things, and, and that comes back to the point I was making about our circadian rhythms, about biorhythms, very small disruptions to that routine has quite a very significant impact and much more so than I thought it would. So let's get down to the money. How does concentrating on well-being actually help us as business owners? This is what Christian had to say. It depends. I mean, um, you know, there are studies that show uh, the link between health and well-being and, for instance, share prices. So you, you could see, I mean, that's kind of a very fundamental aspect if you're a publicly listed company, that all, you know, that, that there is a, a, an association between the two. Um, and so, for instance, there is uh, some really good evidence on the link between staff engagement and rogue behavior. So let's say if you're a financial services firm and you're really worried about rogue behavior, which leads to you know compliance issues and maybe fines from the regulator, there's some really good uh, work that shows that more engaged staff, and typically those are staff with better health and well-being, also show less rogue behavior. Um, so, so that's why financial services companies might be interested in it. Um, and that has a direct impact in terms of their fines on their bottom line. I mentioned the NHS, um, you know, around uh, the links between health and well-being, quality of care, uh, hospital-acquired infections, mortality risks. I mean, I could keep going. Uh, financial surplus in trusts, not that that exists any longer, but let's say uh, we were tracking that a few years ago. Um, you know, deep-rooted organizational outcomes. Um, so um, it, even to the point where as you're working with, um, let's say, an automotive um, um, uh, company uh, that produces cars, uh, where they could see material differences in terms of, um, you know, of productivity on the assembly line, for instance. Yeah, it's really interesting how we how we think and feel really does impact our our behavior. And I think an interesting example that that Christian gave there for me was the the relationship between employee engagement and rogue behaviors. Mm. I think that, you know, that makes sense. So we think about what we know about employee engagement. We know that, that employees who are engaged typically feel more psychologically safe and have better relationships with their line managers. So in terms of reporting errors, we also know in psychologically safe teams, more errors are reported. That's not to say they make more errors, they report more errors. There's more transparency around what's actually going on in the business. So therefore, you know, creating an environment where these, these rogue behaviours are going to be far reduced, I think just, just makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you... Like we talk about the Nick Leeson, who's God, that must be like twenty five years ago. Nick Leeson, I can't remember which company, but he was the they did a a, um, a film or a movie around him, and basically he was the one, the rogue trader um, who lost thousands, millions. I don't know how much he lost. It was an awful lot of money, um, just because he made a mistake and then tried to cover it up and then couldn't go and tell people he'd made the mistake. So he kept tra- trying to trade out of his losses. 
Um, so yeah, it does make a lot of sense. And if you're not a financial company, if you're a creative agency, um, then just the idea of someone turning up at work, feeling healthy, feeling energized, feeling engaged in the work they're going to do, that's going to make such a difference to the quality of work you create and also the productivity. And the happiness of your customers. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. So we asked all three guests what they thought the cornerstones of well-being were. Should we start with Jill? Yes. Authenticity is, and what I mean by that is actually, I do actually care. So I'm not putting a sticky plaster on. I'm not saying that I'm going to recruit a well-being manager because that's the right thing to do. I actually truly understand the importance and the value that will bring not only to my workforce, but actually to me as a business owner. I truly understand that there is a there's a relationship there and that actually there's this shared value concept. This isn't fluff, people. There are a number of trends to be aware of in a sense, but I think the trends that stick out the most is uh, worsening mental health over a long period of time. Now, now you might highlight the pandemic period and you say, well, look, of course, the pandemic period arrived and that 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 put a lot of pressure on individuals and maybe the cost of living crisis will do the same as, as, as we speak. Uh, but the reality is that our, the mental health of our workforce has been getting worse and we're using the same exact measurements year on year. The other great thing about about the survey is it, it's a longitudinal study. This has been going for 10 plus years now. Um, so yeah, it, it might be easier as a, as a business owner or even a, a you know a political leader to, to blame the, the pandemic for the, the worsening state of, of physical and mental health in our workplaces. But as Christian says there, the longitudinal data shows us that mental health in our workforce has been getting worse for more than a decade. So finally, let's hear from Donna. The commonality is all around teams and people. So whether you, if you're a project manager, you're still working with, you know, a team of people to, working towards a goal in a company. It's a similar thing. We have, you know, business goals and all of the people are contributing to that. So on a day-to-day basis, the work, the day-to-day work is different, but the essence of people and moving forward and reaching goals is the same. So to recap there, the cornerstones, Jill promotes authenticity, leadership's really understanding there is a value to well-being. Christian's point there, mental health in the workplace is getting worse. If we don't act now, we could be in real trouble in a couple of years time. And Donna, it's all about people. I think it's clear to see why Donna and Open Credo absolutely smashed it this year and quite deservedly won the small business category. Definitely, definitely. And so let's move on to the business case for well-being. So this is our final push to you to say this. As Leanne said, this isn't fluff. This isn't, oh, it's nice to have. This isn't, oh, it's for big companies. There is an actual business case for well-being, as Christian explains. Well, um, the the initial impact was really um, uh, around building a business case for health and well-being in workplaces. So try to get information together to show that the um, health and well-being of employees is linked to a variety of different business outcomes. So if you improve the uh, health and well-being of employees, you also improve prove those business outcomes. But actually, over time, what we found is that the initiative itself has become an intervention as well. So those organizations that are participating within it get a lot out of it and start uh, and start on an improvement journey themselves. Um, they, they're benchmark marking themselves against each other. Um, and that in, by itself leads to improvement in those workplaces. So I think it's fair to say that um, from a researcher um, point of view, uh, initially I thought this would be interesting in terms of collecting data and starting to make that business case. But ultimately interve- intervention itself, um, the initiative, such as you know, the surveys that we do and the reports that we that we give to the um, uh, participants in the, um, in the competition, uh, that in and by itself was driving improvement as well. 
Yeah, and we see that in other areas of um, research as well with employee engagement, with well-being, any kind of, I guess, an employee voice initiative. We see a boost in morale, uh, which in turn tends to give us a little uptick in, in employee engagement and well-being. Just showing that we care is often a really good place to start. I think Jill from Vitality sums it up perfectly. From an employer, I benefit because I've got a more engaged workforce. They produce better outcomes. They're more productive. Summed it up perfectly, I think there, Jill. Wellness isn't just a gesture. It's much more than that. So we asked Donna, what do you think well-being is? I I think that it is remembering that we are all humans first. The most, you know, we have to remember our humanness. I think that's the most important thing because you can have all the bells and whistles. You can have all of these, you can have the ping pong tables, all those sorts of things, but they're very, they can be very superficial if you haven't got the fundamental understanding of our humanness and our connectedness and our, um, and community and the fact that we actually, humans need each other as well so and the importance of collaboration and those sorts of things so I think from that springs a whole bunch of other things so um and that isn't to the detriment of you know forgetting that we have to deliver to clients but they are also people so it's people delivering to people so for me that's my personal personal philosophy is around remembering the humanness of us all first and foremost So just like redesigning your logo doesn't automatically give you a new brand, putting a ping pong table in the break room doesn't automatically give you wellness and well-being. Very nice. Very well said. A really great sentiment from from Donna there. And again, I think just that that authenticity shines through. So let's say that you are convinced, you understand the business case for having a healthy workplace. You're excited about this data and Britain's Healthiest Workplace Awards. Where do we start? Let's hear from Christian. Ultimately, my, my approach has always been is to try to outline the improvement journeys, uh, try to do the benchmarking, try to make organizations understand how they could improve uh, in, in, in this space. And, and there are organizations uh, in the life cycle of Britain's Healthiest Workplace that have improved greatly as well, you know, in terms of how they do it. So all of this is possible. It's just, it just about making it an organizational priority, I guess, to some extent. Uh, and then... Um, you know, that would be where I think the, the key uh, aspect of all of this comes in, the key message of all of this comes in, is that if you make it an organizational priority, in all likelihood, your business outcomes and your organizational outcomes will improve as well. So that's that's the logic that I see everywhere where I've worked. A great step one from Christian there, commit to health and well-being being a priority at board level. What's next? We asked Donna. Um, you have to start with understanding the current landscape. There's there, in my opinion, there's no there's no point rolling out a whole bunch of initiatives if you don't understand what's currently going on. When I joined Open Credo, I did one-to-one interviews with every single person in the company. So, and I asked them about their experiences, the things they liked, they didn't like, and that helped me surface some patterns. So again, patterns, <laughs> so about what was going on in the organization. Um, what was going on for some individuals, what was going on a bit more collectively. So I think the most important thing is understand the landscape. I personally don't think it's helpful if you're a new person going into an organisation particularly, that the whole new broom, you just sweep away everything that exists. I think it's really, really important to understand what exists first before applying any changes. If you are a regular listener, I think you'll, you'll be starting to see some people and culture themes coming up here. 
you know, Donna made a really great point there. Before we can plot out where we want to get to, we need to start by understanding exactly where we are, what's working, where can we improve? And we do that by asking employees, by using employee voice. As Christian reminds us, this isn't just for the massive companies. And also don't think that um, because you're a small employer, you cannot match what large employers are doing. To some extent, that's true, but you don't need 60 interventions, you know, you, you, you know, you, you, you know, to, to, to make a material difference in this. And, you know, going back to the insights we, we saw before, you know, typically only 60% of your employees are aware of the interventions that are in place already. So adding more and more isn't really going to do much to improve the health and well-being of your teams. You're better investing your time in, in raising awareness and making sure that your people understand the support that is already in place. As a small business, that is a really great opportunity for you. So we talked before about how the importance of board level buy-in, this has to come from the top. This can't just be, as we said before, sticking a ping pong table in the break room. This is really, really important that everyone or from the top to the bottom believes that this is going to make a big difference. Here's Donna. Yeah, absolutely. The directors, the company directors are open to a lot of the people-focused ideas that come their way. So I'm part of the leadership team. So I have, I have that access as well. So, and I'm part on the board as well. So um, I can take these things to that audience as well. Um, and our parent company, this what this award has done is it's also helped our parent company understand the importance of what we do within our organisation from the people side of things. As I mentioned before, the first thing you can do, a really easy thing you can do is make sure that you have somebody on your board, on your senior leadership team who represents well-being. So Christian explains that you actually also need to be realistic. So I think as an employer, you need to be uh, realistic in terms of what you can achieve uh, in, in terms of that space. So I think in terms of um, the health and well-being of, uh, of employees and, of course, the mental health uh, factor there uh, is really in terms of, uh, you know, I would say arresting that decline and maybe reversing some of that, you know, year on year. Um, and that's, um, you know, you know, can mean a multitude of interventions, of course, that you that you um, that you want to use. Um, but also, I think, uh, to some extent, requires a cultural shift. I mean, we, sp- we, sp- we spoke about personalization in the workplace and, f- and flexible working and these kind of a- aspects of it. I think that's quite fundamental to it, I think, um, in, in terms of not forcing individuals who prefer to work in a certain way to work in another way. If you listened to last week's episode on employer brand, we shared a statistic with you that a lot of businesses don't feel that they have the resources to build out a really great employer brand. What Krishna is saying there is mirroring the same sentiment and conclusion that we came to. You know, employer brand is actually about culture as well-being is as much about culture. You don't have to have all these fancy interventions that are the same as large organisations. Focusing on the culture within your business and the culture shift required to nurture the health and well-being of your, of your employees could be huge. So this culture shift, it means coming, we've learned that it needs to come from the top. We need to all be in it together. So just going and investing in an engagement survey isn't enough or worse, just creating your own on SurveyMonkey and, and, ho- and hoping that it's going to fix things. It's not enough just to have an engagement survey, as Christian explains. 
what I would say is that most organizations nowadays do an engagement survey, um, you know, staff engagement survey. I would uh, look at that engagement survey quite carefully. It's often an off-the-shelf product that they that they buy off somebody. I would look at that very carefully, and I would um, I would um, you know add a, a number of um, you know uh, health and well-being questions within that survey, and that really probably gives you a little bit of a baseline of what you're doing, uh, what, what's happening already in your workplace, and then you can sort of track that over time. Um, so clear collecting data is quite important. So we haven't paid Christian to say this, but essentially our own engagement and well-being survey, the RX7, is exactly what he's just described there. It's not just a sort of employee net promoter score. It is, it looks deep into the health and well-being of all of your employees and then tracks it over a period of time so you can see how well you're doing and how you're improving. Yes, and, and as well, you know, in a similar way to um, the Vitality Survey, it's also about linking health and well-being with the, the thoughts and feelings your employees have about your business and how they translate into commercial outcomes. So whether you're using the Britain's Healthiest Workplace Survey Survey or the RX7 or something else. Just make sure you're getting the insights you need to make impactful differences within your teams. So hopefully at this point you've heard from the winners, you've heard why it's good to run the survey, you've heard from the researcher behind it, you've heard from Jill from Vitality, um, who who has the health insurance company. Um, so you've you've got this business case for doing a survey, but also you understand the fundamentals behind the survey and why it's actually going to work. Yeah, Britain's Healthiest Workplace Survey um, and the awards, as, I, as I've said before, and I think we've all all learned together now, there is a lot of authenticity and integrity behind these awards. Uh, and the data is not only selecting our winners, it is also giving us some really crucial insights into the state of the workplace. Vitality is an awesome organisation that has been working on this programme for over 10 years. So let's hear a little bit more from Jill and what she does at Vitality. Yeah, sure. So people will have heard of Vitality as um, an insurance company. Um, it started 30 years ago back in, in in South Africa. That's where it started. And actually, just a few guys got together and went, do you know what? Let's disrupt the insurance world. So rather than calculating premiums based upon risk, they said, what if we could change that risk profile? Actually, that's better for us as an insurer because actually we'll have to pay out less. If people are ill, they'll get better quicker. And then actually that's good for society. So it's that shared value concept that I spoke about, but actually rather than employer, it's about insurer. So make members healthier, it's better for the insurer, it's better for society. And over the last 30 years, Vitality have created um, this program based on behavioral psychology and behavioral change to help our members live healthier lives. And this has taken 30 years and it's grown, but essentially it's a digital incentive-based wellbeing program, which helps people understand their health, helps them improve their health and then rewards them for doing so. A really innovative company that genuinely care about the health and wellness of us, our teams and of course our businesses. We will leave all the links in the show notes, including links to our guests today so you can connect with them through LinkedIn and other socials. We'll also leave links to Britain's Healthiest Workplace Survey and Awards. So if you want to take part, you'll have all the information you need to do that. And anything else we need to include there, Al? Oh, I also said I would include the um, link to the full insights report, uh, should you want to dive into that. Yes. And so if you look at the show notes, you'll see the link to that particular episode. 
Or if you haven't got the show notes for whatever reason, just go to truthliesandwork.com and you'll see the go to episodes and you'll see it up there on the latest episode. Don't forget, we'll be continuing this discussion on LinkedIn and we'll leave a link to that LinkedIn post in the show notes. We will. Congratulations to all the winners of Britain's Healthiest Workplace Awards. You are awesome. We are inspired by you. Keep doing great work. And thank you to Jill, Donna and Christian for taking the time out and talking to us and giving us their great insights. So we'll see you next week. We will see you soon. Bye-bye. 